0: I uncovered, and even the old evidence that once pointed so convincingly toward Dixon's guilt, snugly fit the pen gun theory. First, witnesses said that before Scanlon arrived on the scene, Dixon had been pounding his gun on the door of his girlfriend's house. The gun discharged in a downward direction. There was a chip in the cement of the front porch that was consistent with the bullet's impact. This would account for the bullet that was missing from Dixon's gun. Second, Dixon said he didn't want to be caught with the gun, so he hid it in some grass across the street before the police arrived. I found a witness who corroborated that. This explained why the gun had been found some distance from the shooting scene, even though nobody had ever seen Dixon throw it. Third, there were powder burns concentrated inside, but not above, the left pocket of Scanlon's shirt. The bullet hole was at the bottom of the pocket. Conclusion? A weapon had somehow discharged in the pocket's interior. Fourth, contrary to the police report, the bullet's trajectory had been at a downward angle. Below Scanlon's shirt pocket, there was a bloody rip where the bullet had exited after going through some flesh. And fifth, Dixon's rap sheet hadn't told the whole story. Although he had spent three years in prison for an earlier shooting, he had been freed because he'd been wrongly convicted so much for his evidence of violence finally I put the crucial question to Dixon if you were innocent why in the world did you plead guilty it was a plea bargain he said referring to the practice in which prosecutors recommend a reduced sentence if a defendant pleads guilty and thus saves everyone the time and expense of a trial they said if I pleaded guilty they would sentence me to a year in prison I'd already spent 362 days in jail waiting for my trial all I had to do was admit I did it, and i go home in a few days. But if I insisted on a trial and the jury found me guilty, well, they'd throw the book at me. they give me 20 years for shooting a cop. It wasn't worth the gamble. I wanted to go home. And so I said, you admitted doing something that you didn't do? Dixon nodded. That's right. In the end, Dixon was exonerated, and he later won a lawsuit against the police department. Scanlon was stripped of his medal, indicted by a grand jury, pleaded guilty to official misconduct, and was fired from the department. As for me, my stories were splashed across the front page. But much more important, I'd learned some big lessons as a young reporter. One was that evidence can be aligned to point in more than one direction. There had easily been enough proof to convict Dixon of shooting the sergeant. But the key questions were these. Had the collection of evidence really been thorough, And which explanation best fit the totality of the facts once the pen gun theory was offered it became clear that this scenario accounted for the full body of evidence in the most optimal way and there was another lesson one reason the evidence originally looked so convincing to me was because it fit my preconceptions at the time to me Dixon was an obvious troublemaker a failure the unemployed product of a broken home the cops were the good guys prosecutors didn't make mistakes looking through those lenses all the original evidence seemed to neatly fall into place whether there had been inconsistencies or gaps i naively glossed them over but when i changed those lenses trading my biases for an attempted at objectivity i saw the case in a whole new light i allowed the evidence to lead me to the truth regardless of whether it fit my original presuppositions The reason I've recounted this unusual case is because, in a way, my spiritual journey was a lot like my experience with James Dixon. For much of my life, I was a skeptic. In fact, I consider myself an atheist. To me, there was far too much evidence that God was merely a product of wishful thinking, mythology, or primitive superstition. As for Jesus, didn't you know that he never even claimed to be God? He was a revolutionary. A sage, and a kind of iconoclastic Jew, but God? No, that thought never even occurred to him. I could point you to plenty of professors who said so, and they could be trusted, couldn't they? Let's face it, even a cursory examination of the evidence demonstrates convincingly that Jesus had only been a human being just like you and me, although with unusual gifts of kindness and wisdom. But that's all I had ever really given the evidence, a cursory look. I had read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my skepticism. A fact here, a scientific theory there, a pithy quote, a clever argument. Sure, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them, a self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I were ever to become a follower of Jesus. As far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof to rest easy that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than the fanciful invention of superstitious people. Or so I thought. It wasn't a phone call from an informant that prompted me to re-examine the case for Christ. It was my wife. Leslie stunned me in 1979 by announcing that she had become a follower of Jesus. I rolled my eyes and braced for the worst. But instead, in the ensuing months, I became fascinated by the positive changes in her character, her integrity, and her personal confidence. Wanting to get to the bottom of these subtle but significant shifts, I launched an all out investigation into the facts surrounding Christianity. Setting aside my self interest and prejudices as best I could, I read books interviewed experts, asked questions, analyzed history, explored archaeology, studied ancient literature, and for the first time in my life, picked apart the Bible verse by verse. I plunged into the case with more vigor than any story I had ever pursued. I applied the training I would received at Yale Law School, as well as my experience as legal affairs editor of the Chicago Tribune. And over time, the evidence began to point toward the unthinkable. It was like the James Dixon case, revisited. Well, maybe you too have been basing your spiritual outlook on the evidence you've observed around you or gleaned long ago from books and teachers or friends. But is your conclusion really the best possible explanation for the evidence? If you were to dig deeper, to challenge your preconceptions and systematically seek out proof, what would you find? Well, that's what this book is about. In effect, I've retraced and expanded upon the spiritual journey that I took for nearly two years. I've crisscrossed the country to interview a dozen respected scholars, to elicit their expert opinions, to challenge them with the objections I had when I was a skeptic, to force them to defend their positions with solid data and cogent arguments, and to test them with the very questions that you might ask if given the opportunity. So who was Jesus, really? Who did he claim to be? And is there any credible evidence to back up his assertions? That's what we'll seek to determine as we board a flight for Denver to conduct our first interview concerning the eyewitness evidence for Jesus. Now, every lawyer and every journalist knows that eyewitness testimony is powerful. One of the most dramatic moments in a trial is when a witness describes in detail the crime that he or she saw and then points confidently toward the defendant as being the perpetrator. And eyewitness testimony is just as crucial in investigating historical matters, even the issue of whether Jesus Christ is the unique Son of God. But what eyewitness accounts do we actually possess? And equally important, how well would these accounts withstand the scrutiny of skeptics? To get solid answers, I arranged to interview the nationally renowned scholar who literally wrote the book on the topic, Dr. Craig Blomberg, author of The Historical Reliability of the Gospels. Blomberg is considered one of the country's foremost authorities on the biographies of Jesus, which are called the Four Gospels. He received his master's degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and his doctorate in New Testament from Aberdeen University in Scotland. He later served as a senior research fellow at Tyndall House at Cambridge University in England, where he was part of an elite group of international scholars that produced a series of acclaimed works on Jesus. He has authored several influential books, and for the last dozen years has been a professor of New Testament at Denver Seminary. Since I sensed that Blomberg was a get to the point kind of a guy, I decided to start my interview by cutting to the core of the issue. Tell me this, I said. Is it possible to be an intelligent, critically thinking person and still believe that the four Gospels were written by the people whose names have been attached to them? Blomberg set his cup of coffee on the edge of his desk and looked intently at me. The answer is yes, he said. He sat back and continued. It's important to acknowledge that, strictly speaking, the Gospels are anonymous, he added. But the uniform testimony of the early church was that Matthew also known as Levi, the tax collector and one of the twelve disciples, was the author of the first gospel in the New Testament. That John Mark, a companion of Peter, was the author of the gospel we call Mark.